0: Church family, I invite you to open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 14 through 21 today. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. The title of our message is God's Plan Unveiled. God's Plan Unveiled. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Um, if, you, uh, if you're able to, you find that in your Bible. If you would stand to your feet, and we're going to read from God's Word. Uh, church family, the most important words that are said are what's read directly from God's Word. This is God speaking to us. And His Word says this, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And I've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of God for his church today. You may be seated. Have you ever said these words? You ever said this before? Well, that didn't go according to plan. You ever said that? I remember when I was about 16, my dad and I were building a two-story barn. The cement slab had been laid. The first floor walls um, had been laid, the ceiling joists, which were serving as the floor joists of the second floor, had been laid, the flooring on the, uh, the sheeting on the second floor had been uh, laid, and we had got the exterior stud walls around the second floor of that barn. Um, let me, the next step, obviously, is building the roof, so let me set the scene for you. It was about 9 p.m. at night during the winter, which means it's pitch black dark outside, uh, we had one little set of work lights that we had to work with, um, and, uh, and we wanted to get the trusses up. We wanted to start doing that. I'm standing on a ladder holding up the first truss, by balancing it on top of a two-by-four. So you get the picture, I'm standing there, I'm balancing it's, it's leaned up, I'm balancing it. My dad is on another ladder next to this one stud wall, nothing between him and the ground below, uh, about that stud wall, and he's going to try to secure that truss in place and then move to the other side and get it secured in place. All of a sudden, we start hearing that sound you don't want to hear, that slight groaning, creaking sound of wood starting to... Twist and move. You know what I'm talking about. And then I hear my dad yell, get out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way. So I jump off the ladder that I'm on, just drop the, the two by four that I was using. I'll race down the stairs. I think I made it down the whole flight of stairs in about a second. And then as soon as I step to the side, I hear this loud crash and this hammer just comes whirling down the steps right past my head, slams into the wall in front of me. And what had happened was the truss obviously fell and it caught a hammer that was laying on the side of a ladder and flipped it just like you would a spoon on a table and just slung it down the staircase right after me. And uh, so at this point, I'm down at the bottom. I don't know if dad's still standing up there on the ladder or if he's, falling on the ground below. And so I say, you all right? And I hear, yep. You all right? Yep. And then those infamous words, I don't know who uttered them first, but one of us did. Well, that didn't go according to plan. It was a mess. Um, but of course, um, you probably want the rest of the story. My dad was not to be defeated that night. And um, by the time we left that night, I don't know what time it was, but we had a few of those uh, roof trusses in place, and then we finished it out, and that roof is still standing strong almost 20 years later. I'm sure we could all go around the room. We could all tell stories of, well, that didn't go according to plan that have happened in our lives. Some of them may be funny stories. Some of them may be hard to think-about, and hard-to-tell stories. Two weeks ago, we saw in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, how a serpent tempted the first woman to disobey God. And then last week, we saw in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, how that woman and her husband who was with her chose to rebel against the God who had made them in His image and who had provided everything they needed to live the most perfect life imaginable. When we come to the end of Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, it will be really easy to say, well, that didn't go according to plan. And kind of step back and just go, well, it's all messed up. There's no hope now. But God's Word, church, doesn't leave us wallowing in the muck and mire of the sinful corruption, which, as we saw last week, had already begun to take root in the heart of sinful humanity. Before we even have time to wonder what's going to have happen next, God speaks. And we see Him speaking throughout most of our passage for today. And His words are a mixture. They're a mixture of both judgment and promise. Consequences and hope. Curse and blessing. In the next section of Genesis 3, we see God unveil His plan, which He had from before the foundation of the world. In verses 1 through 5, we learn this, that the reality of temptation should drive us to Jesus for a divine Rescue, And then in verses 6 through 13, we learn that the ugliness of sin should drive us to Jesus for a beautiful salvation. And church family, today I believe that we'll see in chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 of Genesis that the certainty of God's promise should drive us to Jesus for a new life. I told you several weeks ago that throughout chapter 3, we just want to be driven to Jesus over and over and over again. Today we see the certainty of God's promise should drive us to Jesus for a new life. After the woman and then the man sinned, verse 7 tells us that they were for the first time aware of their nakedness. We know this wasn't a good thing because what did they do? They immediately tried to cover their nakedness. Then they tried to hide from God, probably because they knew that their covering wasn't good enough to keep God from knowing that they had disobeyed him. And then God confronts the man and then the woman. And both of them, they kind of do the same thing. They try to shift the blame, shift the focus away from themselves rather than humbly confessing their fault. And verse 13 ends with the woman saying to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then in our passage for today, God does what he has to do because he's a holy and righteous God. He pronounces the consequences for sin. He speaks to the serpent. We'll talk about that. He speaks to the woman. We'll talk about that. He speaks to the man. Then Adam gives his wife a new name, and then God provides for them a much-needed gift. Now, as we study these verses, we don't merely want to see and hear what happened in the garden, though we do want to see that. But we also want to see and hear from the Lord and understand how what happened in the garden really matters for our lives today. As we see God unveil His sovereign plan, I believe we see three main truths emerge from this passage. And that's what I want to share with you today. First is this, we must battle an enemy who will be defeated through the promised Son. Church, we must battle an enemy who will be defeated through the promised Son. See, even though the man and woman sinned, even though God confronted the man and woman concerning their Sin, the first word of judgment God speaks, is not directed toward the man or to the woman. The first word of judgment God speaks is directed toward the serpent. Verse 14 and 15 says, the Lord God said to the serpent. See that? He he confronts the man and the woman in their sin, and then he speaks first to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's a lot going on in these two verses, but let's just notice here the big picture to begin with. God's first word of judgment is directed toward the serpent. As we see throughout the rest of this passage, God still loves the man and the woman. Even though they have willingly rebelled against Him, God still loves the man and the woman. Yes, their sin has broken His relationship with Him. Yes, He is going to have to kick them out of the garden. Yes, in one sense, they have become His enemy. But God's greatest enemy is not mankind, but Satan. Satan's temptation of the woman was a declaration of war against the sovereign God. And so God's first words of judgment are directed toward His primary enemy, who also happens to be our primary enemy. First we see there is humiliation, the humiliation of the serpent in verse 14. He's not going to be a revered beast, but a cursed beast. He will be humbled to the dust of the earth to be trampled upon. And then we see the ultimate defeat of this serpent in verse 15. Verse 15 tells us that there's going to be enmity, that's hatred between the serpent and the woman, between the, woman's, uh, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. In other words, there's going to be a battle. There's going to be this battle that begins to rage from this moment on, not indefinitely as we'll see in just a moment. But there will be this ongoing battle for now, this struggle between the serpent and all his servants of evil on the one side and between the woman and all her offspring on the other side. And this is the battle between good and evil that we see in our world today, that we see in our own hearts today the struggle between doing what is right versus doing what is wrong. The struggle between doing what will help us fit in with the world around us and between, doing, between that and doing what would bring honor and glory to the God who has created us. This battle is a very real battle. It's a battle against a very real enemy, against the serpent, against Satan. And God said it would be like this. He's telling us right here, This is what life now is going to be like. You are now, humanity is now living in a battle. But God also promised that it would not be an eternal battle. It would not be an eternal struggle between good and evil. For the offspring of the woman would ultimately defeat the serpent. Notice the end of verse 15. He says, he, speaking of this offspring or seed, depending on your translation, offspring or seed, you can translate it either way. Now you'll hear me use both today. Um, this offspring coming from the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this word bruise, it, we translate it different ways. strike, uh, like a blow to someone. Uh, you can translate it different ways. But it, both times it's mentioned there, it's the same word. It's the same word in Hebrew repeated both times. What the serpent does to the offspring, or the seed, the offspring does to the serpent. So then the question would be, well, if they're both kind of doing the same thing to one another, then how could there be a winner? It seems like it would just be a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They're just both doing the same thing. But notice where the text places the contrast. The contrast is placed upon, number one, the ones who are doing the pot fighting. And number two, the location of the blow or the strike in the fight. On one side of the ring... We have the serpent. On the other side, we have this offspring, this seed. The offspring or seed, we know who the serpent is, Satan. Who's this offspring? Who is the seed? Well, in general, the seed is the people of God. It's the, it's, it's the people of God. And the story of the Old Testament begins to unfold who God's people are. We get to the New Testament and we get clarification of who God's people are. There are, those, there are those who trust in Jesus Christ. You see, that's where we get to the specific meaning here. The offspring in general refers to the people of God, but specifically the specific offspring singular is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised king, the son of God. And so let me ask you, who is going to win this battle, Satan or God? Is this going to be a never ending battle or both just keep exchanging blows, but there's no one ever declared winner? No, because these are not equal foes. This is Satan on one side. And this is God, the Son, on the other. This is not a battle between two equal powers, but a battle between a greater and a lesser power. I love how the Apostle John said this to Christians who were struggling against false teachers. He said this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's not a battle between two equal powers. It is a battle between a greater and a lesser power. So that's the who. But now notice the location of what I like to call the battle blow. Okay? That battle blow. Notice the location of where it lands. Both the seed and the woman uh, seed of the woman and the serpent inflict battle blows upon one another, but the location is different. The serpent will wound the heel of the seed. And the seed, the offspring, the promised one, this promised child of the woman will wound the head of the serpent. Now which one is the winning blow? Is one a greater blow? We've seen that one is a greater being, a greater person than the other, a greater foe than the other. But what about the, the, um, the location? Is one greater than the other? Yes, it is. You don't have to be a black belt in mixed martial art to know, arts to know that the knockout blow is not to the heel, it's to the head. You want to knock the person out, you don't go for their heel. It might hurt, it might sting, but you go for their head. And that's what we see here. The winning blow goes to the head, not the heel, which means that the offspring is the victor. And so here's what theologians for centuries have called. I'm going to give you a fancy word this morning. You ready? You got your thinking caps on? Here's your fancy word. It's what, it's what has been called for centuries, the proto-evangelium. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's two Greek words that are a compound word. The first word means first, proto. And the second word, evangelium, is a Greek word that means good news. The first good news, the first mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ is right here in chapter 3, verse 15. How incredible that the first words of judgment after mankind have sinned was a word of victory over the serpent. I can't help but see the grace of God and his love towards humanity in this cursing of the serpent. Adam and Eve have sinned. And what's his first words? Serpent, you're going down. Serpent, you are going down. Ultimate victory. And it's going to come at the hands of this man born of woman. This offspring coming from the woman. And then throughout the pages of scripture, we see the development of this promise. We see it come into greater and greater focus. One of the things I love about God's Word is it's not just a random collection of stories. This is one book. It's made up of 66 different books and thousands and thousands of of lines and, and words, but it's telling one true story. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, after the murder of the good offspring of Eve, we find Eve naming a son Seth and then saying, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. Then you can flip to Genesis chapter 9, verse 9. After God destroyed the earth with a flood, we find God making a covenant with Noah. And then God says, and then the text says, God, has a, um, God says, I'm sorry, behold, I established my covenant with you. And note the word, your offspring or your seed after you. You flip to Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, and we see God making a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. Then you can flip a, several more books over and you go to Second Samuel chapter 7. We see God making a covenant with King David. And notice the words in this covenant. When your days are fulfilled, he tells David, and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your, you ready for it? offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and then we cross over into the new testament and we hear Matthew quoting from the prophet Isaiah in his explanation of this child that is going to be born to Mary and here's what Matthew says Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Note, son, a man, a, a coming son born of woman. I and mean, he gives us a little, a little clue, which means God with us. This is what Emmanuel means. All right, now we start to see how this one can be the victor. This is a greater power. This is God who is coming, being born of woman. And then the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatian church, said this in chapter 3, verse 16. Notice now, we're thousands of years removed from Genesis 3. We're in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and now he's quoting the Old Testament, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And then Paul says this, Who is Christ? And then just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 4 of Galatians, Paul writes this to the church. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, note the language here, born of woman, born of woman. That's hearkening all the way back to Genesis chapter three, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Church, this victorious offspring promised in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, is very clearly none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And as that great hymn penned by Martin Luther says of this Christ, and He must win the battle. This isn't merely a theological doctrine which is interesting to learn, but not really practical for our lives. It's a theological doctrine which provides necessary encouragement for our day-to-day lives. Remember, we are in a battle. But oh, what great hope We as Christians have, that is those who are in Christ, have. Because the battle against sin, against the serpent, who is behind all of this evil in this world, has already been won. The Apostle Paul encouraged the Christians in Rome with this very doctrine of the ultimate and assured victory of Christ when he said in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, he's talking to people in the church, he's talking to people like you and me, okay? And he says this, he's giving them encouragement, and here's how he encourages them to keep going forward. To keep following Jesus, He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How do we know that? Genesis chapter 3. God promised it all the way back in the beginning. The writer of Hebrews offered similar encouragement when he wrote, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver All those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Church, we must battle an enemy. That's real. Be real, right? There's a battle raging around us in our hearts today. But we battle an enemy who will be defeated through the promised Son. And in one sense, the victory has already been won. The second main truth we see as God unveils His plan for humanity is this. We must endure pain and difficulty ending in death. not going to try to sugarcoat it for you. We must endure pain and difficulty ending in death. After God curses the serpent and promises a son who's going to come and conquer the serpent, now is time for God to turn his attention to the woman and to the man. But again, I want us to not miss the big picture. Last week we saw that God cannot ignore sin. Now we see that God cannot let sin go unpunished. There are consequences to rejecting God and His good word and His good design. And yet, even in the midst of the punishment, as we walk through some of these punishments, we're going to see and hear glimmers of hope. There's going to be glimmers of hope mixed in with these consequences. Verse 16 says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And what we see is that the punishments of the woman and in a minute when we get to the man strike at the heart of the unique roles that God gave to the man and to the woman. The woman was created in a very unique way such that she could bear children, which means she was a vital part, played a privileged role in humanity, fulfilling God's purpose for them to multiply and fill the earth. Remember, that's a command given before sin entered the world there to multiply and fill the earth. Well, that takes a woman to have a very, very large role in that taking place. Very privileged role. And so now, now her participation in God's unique design for her life would come with immense pain. And then we go to the next part of verse 16. The beautiful relationship in which she is to bear children and to be a helper and having dominion over the earth, that beautiful relationship of marriage is now going to be marked by strife. Pain and childbearing. Disharmony strife in the marriage relationship where there was supposed to be a glad-hearted willingness to live out the specific roles in marriage designed by God. Now the woman will seek to reject submission to her husband. Her desire shall be for her husband. And the man will seek to rule over rather than lovingly lead his wife. It's what sin does. It messes up God's good creation and His good design. As one writer said, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. And as another theologian wrote, the two who once reigned, remember they're reigning over creation, the two who once reigned as one now attempt to rule over each other. And yet, church, there's hope. Remember, I said that we can see glimmers of hope. There is hope here. Childbirth will be painful. And the relationship of marriage which leads to children will be filled with strife. But, note, there will be marriage and there will be children. He says you will bring forth children. And that's good news because remember, the promise of the son who will destroy the serpent can only be fulfilled if the woman has offspring. And so there's this glimmer of hope. Even though now it's going to be messed up, now it's going to be in pain and strife, there will still be children who are born, which means the hope, the promise, is still alive. Then God turns to the man in verses 17 through 19. Instead of listening to the voice of God, He listened to the voice of His wife. And that phrase, listen to, that you see there in verse 17, it's an it's a idiom, a, a figure of speech, which means to obey. It, not, it doesn't just mean, I, I heard what she said, it means I obeyed disobeyed God by obeying what his wife said, so guess what? Adam has to be punished as well. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, there's that same word, same word used for the woman, now used for the man. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now I want you to remember, one of the commands and responsibilities and privileges that God gave mankind was having dominion over over the rest of creation. They were to subdue creation. Yes, God's intention for the man was to work the garden and to keep the garden. We see those words used in chapter 2. But this work would be filled with joy and blessing. However, because of his disobedience, what should have been only a blessing, his work for the Lord will now, like with the woman giving birth, will be filled with pain. Notice that God curses the ground in the midst of his punishment of the man. The ground is now going to bring forth those wretched things called thorns and thistles. I was working in the yard yesterday, and one caught me across the nose. And I thought, that kind of stung a little bit. And a few minutes later, I reached up, and I didn't know if it was sweat or what. reached up and touched my nose, and it's just just bleeding. It cut me across my nose. Thankfully, I think it's healing up pretty quickly. But I hate those things, right? Where do they come from? Well, they come from sin. They come from the curse. It's a sign of God's judgment upon this world. The ground is not going to cooperate with the man, but will now work against him. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Friends, work itself is not punishment. God created us to work before sin ever entered the world. Work is a good thing. But the difficulty, the hardships, the frustration, the pain, the exhaustion in work is a result of the fall of mankind. And you see how relevant this story is to everyday life. You see how relevant it is to everyday life. From the cries of pain in the delivery room to the cries of frustration out on the job, we live in a fallen and broken world. Life is hard. And as a result of sin, life comes to an end in death. God says, to dust you shall return. Now remember, God had given them everything they needed for life. And God had told them how to avoid death. But the man and woman disobeyed. The corruption of the world was their fault, not God's. It's our fault, not God's. This was rightful punishment coming from a holy God who must punish sin. So whenever childbirth is painful, whenever marital strife arises, whenever the crops don't grow or the machine or the computer breaks down at work causing frustration, whenever you stand at the bedside of a dying friend or family member, let it remind you of the ugliness of sin. But church family, let it also remind you of the great faithfulness of God who promised hope in the midst Of corruption. See, just like with the woman, there's a glimmer of hope in the punishment of the man. It's not going to come easily anymore. It's going to come with labor and toil, but the ground will still produce food. Note here, promise of a son who's going to destroy the serpent. What are two practical things that have to happen for that promise to come true? The woman has to have children And there has to be food for them to eat. You see the glimmer of hope even in the midst of God's punishment of the man and woman. We see glimpses of life in the midst of difficulty and death. So we must battle an enemy, church. We must endure pain and difficulty ending in death. But the third truth we see is God's plan is unveiled is this. We must trust God to provide undeserved life. We must trust God to provide undeserved life after God has finished cursing the serpent and the ground and finished punishing the woman and the man. We see two very interesting things happen. One in verse 20 and one in verse 21. And I think both of these things should lead us to trust God for an undeserved life. A life that only he provides. First, we see that Adam gives his wife a new name. This is interesting. Now, now, he's already named his wife. You remember that? Back in chapter 2, he's already given her a name. When he saw what God had formed from his rib, back in chapter 2, Adam exercised his God-given authority and he named the woman. He said, she shall be called woman. That was the name he gave her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And we talked about that. Woman sounds like man, even in the Hebrew language. And so there's a similarity between them. They're both made in the image of God. But he didn't name her the same thing. He didn't name her man because she wasn't just like him. He said she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then in the first half of chapter 3, we see Adam passively reject his God-given authority. Instead of stopping his wife from sinning, he just stood there and watched her fall into sin. Instead of opening his mouth and warning His wife, with God's instructions, he listened to his wife and followed her into sin. He passively rejected his God given authority. But now we see some hope in the fact that Adam picks back up his rightful role as leader and he gives his wife a new name. And notice what he names her. He doesn't name her death, he names her life. He doesn't name her death, which is the consequence of sin. But he names her life. Verse 20 says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That's what Eve means. It means life, to give life. It's a, it's a, it's a name of, of life, not of death. Now, we don't have all the details, but perhaps Adam heard God's curse upon the serpent. Perhaps he heard God promise an offspring to the woman who would ultimately defeat The deceiver, perhaps he heard that the woman's labor would be painful, but that she would still bring forth children. And while we may not know exactly all that was going through Adam's mind, we do know that he named his wife a new name and her name was Eve. We do know he believed in some way that his and his wife's death would not be the end. Remember, God just told them they're going to die. To dust you shall return. And he turns around and names his wife, Life. We do know that in Adam's naming of his wife Eve, which conveys the meaning of life, God wants us to see the hope of continued life, even after the horror of sin, which should only result in death. But that's not the only hope of life we see here. We then have God's action in verse 21. Notice His action in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, to fully appreciate this verse, we've got to contrast it with verse 7. Well, remember what verse 7 said. We've got to go back to chapter 2, verse 25. Remember chapter 2, verse 25. Before sin entered entered the world, it said the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then as soon as sin enters the world, we read this in chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so as soon as they sinned, their innocence was lost and they tried to hide their shame. They weren't ashamed. Now they feel shame. What happened? Sin is what happened. But apparently their efforts at covering their sin, their shame did not work. God still saw their sin and punished them because of their sin. But God didn't stop there. Verse 21 tells us that God did for them what they could not do for themselves. Notice the contrast between verse 21 and verse 7. The fig leaves needed to be replaced with something more costly. The skins of an animal. An animal had to die. The covering of oneself had to be replaced with receiving the covering provided by someone else. And a man-made covering had to be replaced with a God-made covering. All throughout chapters 1-2, through the word made, that word made is used. And it's used in relation to God's creating work. But now we see the word made used in relation to God's saving work. Yes, the clothing God provided would remind them of the innocence they had lost. That's why we need to wear clothes today. And cover up parts of our body because it's a reminder that we are sinners before a holy God but God's covering would also allow them to continue living in service to God in a way it would save them from living continually in the shame of their sin isn't this beautiful church and I think here we see a foreshadowing of God's commandment and even provision for the coverings of priests in the temple Nakedness was now a sign of sinfulness once sin entered the world. And so many years later, the priests in the temple were commanded this. God commanded them to cover their nakedness. This is Exodus chapter 28, verse 42. Before they entered into the holy place in the temple, and the text says in Exodus, lest they bear guilt and die. There's this incredible symbolism between the clothing that they wore covering the shame which sin brought into their lives, allowing them to come before the presence of a holy God. Special God-designed clothing was a reminder to the priests and all of Israel of their sin, but it was also the grace by which God would allow them to enter into His presence to serve Him and worship Him. And then I believe that both the covering of Adam and Eve and the covering of the priests Were a foreshadowing of a much greater covering. It was and is the covering of righteousness provided by the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Son who endured life in a fallen world without ever falling into sin. And then He clothed Himself with our shame as He hung naked upon a cross so that He could then clothe us with His righteousness, thus providing sinners with a way to live before the Holy God in service and worship of God. The same God that they had sinned and rebelled against. Do you see the glimmer of hope in the garden? Perhaps it's even more than a glimmer. Do you see the glimmer of blessing in the midst of the curse? Do you see the hope of life here in the midst of death? Church, we must trust God to provide an undeserved life. A life that we need, that we don't deserve, but that He, out of His great love and grace and mercy, willingly provides for us. And that life will ultimately come, and it has come through the promised offspring who will, in the words of Genesis chapter 3, bruise the serpent's Head, and who, in the words of 1 John chapter 3, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That is God's plan unveiled, and oh, church, what a glorious, glorious plan it is. You know, things don't always go according to our plans, do they? But, friends, there is one thing you will never, ever, ever hear God say. When it comes to His plan unveiled in Genesis chapter 3, never throughout the rest of Scripture will you hear Him say, well, that didn't go according to plan. Now what are we going to do? Never will you hear Him say that. Throughout the rest of Genesis and the Old Testament and the New Testament, despite all the sin and corruption and scandal and unfaithfulness of God's people and wickedness of all the nations, God in His own timing keeps moving history forward to the fulfillment of the plan that He announced in the Garden of Eden. This promised seed, this promised offspring continues to be promised through the constant battle between good and evil, through the cries of agony of thousands and thousands of birthing mothers, through the ugliness of marital strife, which we see littering the pages of Scripture through the billions of sweat drops from the heads of laboring workers through hard, cursed ground filled with thorns and thistles, God kept His promise. We're on a night in a little town called Bethlehem. A mother in the pains of childbirth gave birth to this promised seed. And he grew up to be a man, battling against the serpent, but never ever submitting to the serpent's deceitful ways. And then the serpent struck. And it was a painful blow. There were whips and there were punches. There were thorns plucked from the cursed ground and pressed into the head of this promised seed. There were nails driven into the offspring's hands and into his feet. There was a cross upon which he hung. There was a dead body laid in a tomb. The serpent has struck. But church, we rejoice today because the serpent only struck his heel. And that offspring of woman was laid in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, church, it was time for that heel struck promised offspring to prove his power and victory over that ancient serpent when he rose up from the dead. And then is what comes to pass scripture, which says death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Victory, church, was proclaimed in the Garden of Eden. Victory was displayed up on a cross and then in an empty tomb. And victory will be complete on that coming day when the promised seed cast that deceiver of the nations, that ancient serpent, into the lake of fire. For He will be tormented both day and night, Scripture says, forever and ever and ever. Church, the wounded heel of the suffering servant will destroy the head of the slithering serpent. The crucified Savior will defeat in the end because He is already defeated on the cross and at the empty tomb, the enemy of Almighty God. The One called Jesus the Messiah was proclaimed the conquering King All the way from the beginning. And church, when God unveils His plan, there is no doubt. He will see it through. Where does that leave us today? It leaves us living in a world full of the consequences of sin. Pain and strife. Death and destruction. But church, if you are in Christ today, If you are in Christ, the plan of God does not leave us here in the midst of that pain and strife forever. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For if He goes to prepare a place for us, He said He will surely come again and take us to be with Him there. Church, Jesus said that He is the resurrection and the life. He said, whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in Me and lives shall never die. Yes, we have an enemy, but church, we serve the unstoppable King of kings. I cannot read Genesis chapter 3. I cannot preach this to you today without... Finishing the sermon with Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. Do we know who this promised seed is? Yes, He came born humbly of a woman. Yes, He rode humbly into Jerusalem on a donkey. Yes, He hung humbled and in shame with our sin upon Him on a cross. But do you know how the story ends? From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the promised offspring of Genesis chapter 3. Church family, If you trusted in Him, that is your Savior. That is your Lord. That's who you have every day in the midst of the battle against sin, against temptation. That is our King. The question today is not who is going to win. The question is not who is going to win. That question was settled before it was ever even asked, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. No, the question is not who will win. The question before us today is whose side? are we on whose side are you on friend i can say with confidence and many of you many in this place today can say with confidence that we are on the side of victory because we are on the side of jesus and we can say that with confidence not because we're trusting in our own effort to save us because we're sewing our own fig leaves together because we but because we are trusting in god's work of salvation through the promised seed, through the Lord Jesus Christ to cover our sin and our shame. So let me ask you once more, whose side are you on? The defeated serpent's side or the conquering king of kings' side? If you want to be on King Jesus' side, Scripture tells us that you need to repent of your sin and you need to believe in Jesus for salvation. And as you do, the blood of Jesus will cover you over every sin that you've ever committed and that you will ever commit. And you will be able to live before the Holy God in service and worship for all of eternity. I pray today that the certainty of God's promise will drive us to Jesus for new life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your plan. Thank you for your sovereignty in the midst of corruption. Through centuries and centuries of Satan trying to thwart your plan, yet from the cry of a manger in Bethlehem, the cry of that man on a cross, the cry of victory from an empty tomb, God, your plan that you unveiled in the garden has not failed and will never fail. So God, we ought to be as Christians, as people trusting in Christ, the most joyful people in all the world. No matter what this life brings, God, the victory is already won. And it is ours in Christ. And so God, in just a moment as we sing, God, I pray that we would sing with hearts overflowing with joy. And God, at the same time, if there is someone here today who is not trusted in Jesus Christ, who today are on the side of the defeated serpent. God, I pray that You would draw their hearts to You and that they would turn to Jesus, turn away from their sin, stop trying to fix it on their own, stop, stop trying to cover their own guilt themselves, but they would turn to Christ and let Jesus do for them what only He can do, and that is cover them with His righteousness. God, would You be honored as your church continues to worship you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.